0: Now within the space community as you imagine people will often go to bars after events and you know would brainstorm how you you make wine on Mars or what would it taste like would it taste rusty like the environment of Mars. You know there's been a lot of misinformation people say it's going to cost a trillion dollars no it's not going to cost a trillion dollars we haven't spent a trillion dollars on NASA with adjusted dollars with all the NASA budgets combined from the beginning. It's not going to cost much more than we're getting you know there'll be a need for increase in the nasa budget but it's not like we're not going to get a triple
1: chris carberry joins us on our podcast again he is the author of the book alcohol in space a co-founder of the space drinks association and he's also the ceo of explore mars a group very interested in learning what it's going to take to get us to the red planet so alcohol in space and going to mars are in this episode so let's get started in telescopes and accessories. Chris Carberry, welcome back to our humble podcast. Uh, Dustin couldn't be with us today because he's got double booked a little bit, but uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Mars and alcohol in space. So Chris, um, what got you on this business of alcohol in space? Isn't it obvious? What's that about? <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. All right. So, I, I, I guess I could see the. I could see yeah. you're 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 chilling at night, you know. You yeah. Nice I, I, I and
0: even it. have a little glass of wine on me
1: right now. Oh. There, oh. Good. Good. Well. Anyway. Uh, well, well.
0: Thank you for having me back on. Sure. But as I mentioned last year, it was you know, as you know, within the space community, as you imagine, people will often go to bars after events, and you know would brainstorm how you, you make wine on Mars, or what would it taste like? Would it taste rusty, like the environment of Mars? Uh, or could you brew beer on the moon? You know, it's just all these crazy discussions. And originally, I had considered writing uh, kind of a lighthearted article, you know, just looking at the prospects and, you know, particularly looking at Mars wine and the terroir, you know, would it taste rusty? rusty? Would you have to create a whole new terminology to describe Martian wine? But over time, I ran into a lot of different people actually looking at this topic for real and found dozens and dozens of companies that are actually investing in actual projects, actual research related to alcohol in space, whether you can manufacture it in space, whether you can consume it in space, as well as looking at how you can use the space environment to benefit the products here on Earth. And the more I looked, and also looking at the history of alcohol consumption in space, I realized there's more than enough here for a book. So I might as well be the first one. So that's kind of what really got the ball moving with this project.
1: Have there been people allowed to drink in space? I thought you couldn't. Are astronauts prevented from drinking, or is Oop, it I just getting the drunk?
0: Secret. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: There is, is nobody. There, there is
0: nobody allowed to drink in space.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> but, but yeah, people right. do
0: drink in space. It's officially Got it.
1: wink, wink. Okay, yeah, it's gotcha.
0: officially prohibited by every space agency. Some of them take it more seriously than others. But it's well known that there is alcohol, primarily cognac, that's smuggled up to ISS and the Mir station before then, and there was other alcohol smuggled up before that. And it's generally. Gee, considered- I wonder
1: who's doing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just the Russians.
1: Oh, was, really? You okay. know,
0: I mean, Buzz Aldrin had a communion drink on the surface of the moon. You he know, he did. brought wine and a goblet that he arranged with his church, the, uh, the Webster Presbyterian Church in near Houston. So they brought a, you know, a goblet and wine, and he did a communion service there, and poured the wine, and and did the whole bit. So literally, Buzz was the only person, to my knowledge, who's ever consumed an alcoholic beverage on another planetary body.
1: I but, thought the nickname was came from somewhere else, yeah. but now I know why they call him that. Okay. He
0: is. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and so, but yeah, it's been right now, it's not it's not as though this is a problem. People talk about it as though, oh, people are getting drink, drunk in space. No, I didn't find any evidence of anybody getting inebriated in space. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But all the stories that I've heard are that it's usually done in small amounts, small shots of cognac at special occasions when like a new crew is coming on board, when there's special gatherings, little receptions with the international crew as part of the bonding experience. It loosens people up and it really helped. Frankly, I think it really helps with diplomacy, just helping, frankly, people from different countries, vastly different backgrounds at times from countries that are not getting along very well. And so I think it yeah. has served a valuable purpose. And it's only small shots of cognac, primarily. And so it's, it's not really enough to have too much of an impact on anybody. And, and I literally, I have not heard of anybody getting inebriated. But still a lot of interesting stories about how they're smuggled up. And you are correct. The smuggling is almost entirely done on the Russian
1: side. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're also smuggling astronauts, right? Up until recently, that was the only way to get there. So everybody was getting up there with the other (laughs) Russians. So, so, uh, yeah, I guess I could see that. I mean, think about it, right? You're in space. There's all these politics involved and you've got all of these different nationalities with different cultures in there. And you're under a lot of stress up in space. It's gotta be a great way to just kind of, you know, Everybody has that in common, I guess, is what you're saying, and it's something we can all relate to across cultures. Isn't it weird that, that that's true that alcohol is like the big equalizer among all cultures? Is there a culture: and, well, that, Most
0: cultures, obviously most, there are some that shun alcohol, but it has, been yeah. a, it has been a critical, not a, well I don't know critical, but it has been a very influential part of human civiliz- civilization before written records, and it's played such an integral part throughout history, and it's not going to stop when we're in space, as it hasn't you know, already. And no. so I think it can play a positive role, and particularly when the astronauts or aren't really astronauts, that they are, they are guests, they are tourists, they are people that are not responsible for flying the ship, that are not on duty 24 hours a day. As we start getting into true commercial activities when more and more people are going up to a space hotel or something like that those people are not responsible for the lives everybody else on the ship they're not driving the ship Uh, or when you're going to mars even some astronauts mentioned to me that they don't even see a problem with it if you say going to mars it's like six to eight months there right it's going to be stressful you know you have to put regulations find ways to control it but um you know, in that stressful environment, you need some of these 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 products from home, including alcohol. And one one asked actually was John Grunsfeld, who mentioned, you know, five-time shuttle astronaut as well as... Oh, yeah, associate. John's awesome. But yeah, it's, he mentioned that, you know, going to Mars, he could see how it would be extremely valuable. And I think that he thought we overplayed it a bit because the small amounts that are consumed in space at the moment... Are actually often don't have nearly as much of an impact as some of the approved substance up substances that astronauts consume, mainly sleep medications.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's a great point. There's a lot of medication and other things that medical reasons that that astronauts are taking that could probably have a pretty big impact on their functioning ability and even their safety. So, uh, yeah, no, I, you know,
0: the, some of these common products have dramatically different impact on different people with different physiologies. I mean, not completely because we're all human, but, you know, men versus female, different body masses. It really and just some people are more sensitive to it as well. I have a friend, a physician, actually, who was um, prescribed some, uh, I won't mention the name of it, but, you know, one of the common sleep medications for, you know, for a long plane flight. She took it. She slept the whole way uh apparently she got off the plane, went off and did her talk for the um that she was supposed to give woke up the following day with no memory of the previous from the flight or that she had given talk or did whole, her whole thing so I it was, know
1: that stuff's <laughs> scary isn't it yeah. oh I've heard stories like that where you're on with different medications like that where you just don't have any recall of what yeah what that you that just might did. be
0: terrifying. can you imagine? You know, you've actually, you, next day. You've actually done a big professional talk, did all your, your various receptions and everything, and you have no recollection. You were basically no, in whatever. That would
1: terrify me. <laughs> yeah. my, th- my thought would be, God, was I coherent? Did I say anything really stupid? You know, I mean, that'd be my fear. I mean, wow, that's crazy. That's a crazy story. Well, I guess when I think about being in space and I think about all of the factors involved that are trying to kill people while they're up there, I mean, you know, sleeping is obviously a big problem. Circadian rhythm, your your diurnal uh, habits, all of that stuff it just basically goes out the window when you're up in space. So it's like small things like this where what effect does alcohol have? I think it's a pretty important thing to study, especially if we spend more time in space.
0: Well, yeah, and that's one, that's one of the big challenges. And that's one of the reasons also another reason we want to create the Space Drinks Association. I'll get into that a little more. But yeah. To look at some of these issues, because because alcohol is officially prohibited, there have been <coughs> excuse me there have been no official studies on how we met, metabolize alcohol in space. We know from anecdotal tales that we seem to metabolize it fine. <coughs> excuse me, but we don't know that for sure because nobody acknowledges it happened so oh there's no drinking in space so we can't <laughs> there's no there's no way of testing this of course there is so but it is anecdotal but as we send like for instance if like axiom or you know virgin or others you know if we are able to get people into space in these commercial orbiting platforms and many of them are thinking about having you know enabling drinks it's you know, it might be the place to start doing these studies in a private manner. You know, how can we commercially, you know, particularly if prices come down and there are opportunities, <clears throat> it's, you know, how can you efficiently, efficiently um, test?
1: I guess it's not a good look if you've got governments on taxpayer money paying for these kind of studies. So I can imagine they probably don't want to do it, but no. you know, it's not like it's part of an international treaty or something that you can't have alcohol in space. So there's nothing to prevent Elon Musk, SpaceX, or, or any of these other companies from saying, yeah, man, have some drinks and stuff like that. So, you know, have at it. Um, and it'd be, and you're right. That would be the good opportunity to do that study officially at that point, but don't, haven't there already been, I mean, alcohol isn't, non-existent in space i mean we haven't we brewed uh beer in space
0: there have been yeast experiments there have been there have been a number of experiments related and to whis-
1: it and whiskey companies have also
0: yeah whiskey there have been something. two two whiskey companies that to my knowledge unless they're more than that i did that i don't know but of course the first whiskey experiment was Artbag. they launched right. Uh, The first whiskey aging experiment up in 2011 came down in 2014, longer than it was supposed to. They got, you know, they had to bring it down later. And that was, you know, that was basically, obviously, they can't bring barrels. They had these little oak chips within the uh, testing uh, apparatus. And, you know, when they came down, they realized there was a, a big difference between the ground sample, the test, you know, the control sample, and the part sample that had been in space, and the space sample was a lot worse it apparently was awful it it had a fishy kind of pungent taste to it is that right yeah, oh but, what a shame well one of the reasons for this was it was a quickly developed project so they thought the handling might have played a role it just it was no real there was no real thought and preparation for the extreme shaking the handling and so they think by the time it got back you know, other factors, external factors to the fact that it was in, it wasn't the microgravity necessarily that had this adverse uh, impact on it. It was, you know, the extreme environment of it coming back down or up and down. And so they now, they're pondering a new experiment, but taking that into account, see if they can counteract some of the, the extreme environments, you know, we particularly coming back down to Earth. But the other company is Suntory, the Japanese whiskey um, and many other beverages, but they're famous for their whiskey. And they have had they sent up two experiment. One already came back down. The other is still up there. And they've been very closed lipped about this. I haven't even I I reached out to them when writing the book. I sent them some questions. They sent back answers, partial answers to some of them. But, you know, they were didn't really answer anything. And so I'm not sure, but they're trying to see if it helps mellow their product when it ages in space. So it was interesting. And then of course, but
1: it was still an aging. It was, a, it was experiment. an experiment. Aging, aging it wasn't like experiment. things were being fermented, or, or I'm sorry, yeah, no. things were well, being just like, for instance, distilled or anything.
0: For instance, uh, another aging experiment for not whiskey but wine. Just recently, twelve bottles of Bordeaux were sent up to ISS, uh, and you know, and they just came back. Uh, I think it was last month. And that happened actually after the book came out. But I've been talking to that group as well. It is fascinating. There's just a lot of interest in that, particularly how it can benefit the product here on Earth. So but it's just a wide range. And even Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch has experiments up on ISS with uh, they have four barley experiments, you know. And so I
1: think that's what I think I was thinking.
0: Yeah, I think, and it's not brewing. It's it's you know gr- barley growing, germination. You see how the barley reacts, and so. But this is very exciting. This is one of the most exciting parts that you know. As I was doing the book, that may I thought was the most interesting. Well, it's great if we can make grow barley in space, and great if we can have whiskey or beer manufactured in space. But I think it's even more important in the sense that Budweiser. A, completely, a company completely unrelated to space exploration is an invest, investing in a technology that is directly relevant to sustainability in space. I think everybody agree, agriculture is one of these essentials. If we can't make our own food in space, there's a limit to how sustainable any human presence will be. So That's right. they, yeah. you know, by doing this, they are making a direct investment in space agriculture.
1: Yeah, it's called um, ISRU, In-Situ Resource Utilization, and it's it's the only way we're going to make it to space. You can't carry all of your water that you're ever going to be able to drink with you. It's just too prohibitive uh, weight-wise, and so you want to use water that's there. That's why everybody's so excited about when they they hear about these these stories about ice on the moon or in the shadows of the moon, you know, it's just people freak out because water's heavy. And if you can use it there, that's, that's what you want to do. And of course, water is a big part of making alcohol as well. It's but a big um,
0: part of alcohol and it's a big yeah. part, you can't have agriculture without water. Also. <laughs> right. So yeah. It's it's like, a lot
1: of, a lot of, can't live without water. Yeah. So.
0: It's one of those essential things. And yeah, it's big, it's expensive, you know, takes up a lot of mass. So yeah, ISRU is going to is essential anywhere we go, and of course, yeah, as you mentioned, the moon. You know, there's evidence of water there, and even more so on Mars. And so, um, it's essential that we'll be able to, that we're able to not only reach those deposits of water, but it's ex- it's accessible and we can actually use it. Uh, the moon, it's a little more questionable just because it's harder to reach. You know. Places that are really cold, and they think the the ice is probably almost as hard as steel. <laughs>
1: <And> so <laughs> yeah, well, and, yeah, there's practical issues, I'm sure, yeah, so, which is getting there. But it's also yeah, on the South Pole, I believe, which is yeah. which is a not a place we've gone to very often.
0: Yeah, on Mars, it's a, probably it seems like it'll be easier to reach, except it's harder to reach Mars. <laughs> right so, there's uh, this, so,
1: yeah, gosh darn it. Why is the universe so big, man? It's like really a pain. Let's talk a little bit about the the Space Drakes Association that you've set up. Tell us what that is, and what and how do you join? <laughs> well, okay. What, do you get like a free drink card or something? If you
0: <laughs> <join>? <laughs> Those details are worth being worked out. But let me just kind of give the overview of how this came about. As you can imagine, it's directly related to the book. As I was writing the book, I realized, boy, there's an interesting, diverse group of players here that are all kind of thinking in the same direction or related to this, whether they actually be alcohol producers or people interested in the whole concept of alcohol in space or kind of the drinking apparatus, glasses, or uh, the whole, all of these different areas. So there's one group of people. There's also the agriculture, space agriculture people, you know, and there's a lot of overlap. And, you know, there's a whole range of other disciplines as well involved and from the entertainment industry. Um, it, it just goes on and on. So I realized, you know, let's I think it's time since there's so many people and every time, every few months, I see a new group coming about, you know, to pull, bring this together, create a, a professional organization, a 501c6. It is a, officially now a 501c6. We have not officially launched it yet publicly, but that will be done um, in the next few weeks. And the website, which is sp- spacedrinks.org, it just has not gone live yet. No but sure. yeah, this, will, this will be a group that, yeah, they'll be at the fun side, as you mentioned, will wa- certainly want to have a lot of fun drinking events around the country and the world, but it'll also focus on serious matters. Looking at some of these challenges, whether it be the medical, biomedical issues of metabolizing alcohol, you know, looking at how does how does microgravity impact fermentation or taste, but we also have no idea—not that we have much of an ability to check check yet—we have no idea how much one third or one sixth gravity is going to affect the process either. But we do know in microgravity that obviously things like um, it impacts. Impacts drinking of carbonated beverages. And I'm sure I mentioned this last time I was on that with carbonated beverages like on in 1G on here on Earth, as we all know, it just the gas rises up, it disperses in the atmosphere, and just makes for a nice fizzy drink. But you know, in space and microgravity, the gas all goes, converges on the center in a ball and starts expanding. And it does that in your stomach also. And so um, (laughs) astronauts report bomb in the making pretty much. They report uh, stomach cramps and wet burps. And so it's not a particularly pleasant experience. And, you know, of course that was a lot of that was people found that out a lot when they were doing that Coke and Pepsi experiment back in the nineties. And, but it's, it's obviously a challenge for the alcohol industry or anybody who has carbonated beverages if they ever want them served in space. And so there are literally companies working on that, you know, and so it's, all these interesting players. So we will be actually doing real experimentation, bringing together groups to look at these issues. We will have chapters and, and membership. And um, and we'll be doing tentatively doing the first um, conference virtually uh, this June. We'll send out the dates later. But it's, you know, so part of this is as we announce it, we're also going to want to bring in, you know, have a call out for help you know who's interested who might have ideas and see how well this can organically develop and making sure it stays within certain well sane parameters <laughs> and but, you <laughs> know but keep it serious but fun and yeah. uh, and have, have a good time but really go after you know look at some of the the important issues particularly those issues that have an overlap that have direct overlap with sustainability in space so that we can, the group can advance the primary goal of the group, but also really have, play a role in advancing sustainability and commercial and, you know, exploration, you know, like agriculture, like these other issues. When, for example, um, another example of things that have a dual purpose, there have been groups, companies like Cosmic Lifestyles that developed microgravity glasses, you know, basically, as you know, it's hard to drink in space, meaning drink anything, you know, you usually mm-hmm. have those spray bottles and they drink the orbs out of, you know, out of the air. Uh-huh. Yeah, or you always just... see that on the... Yeah, I mean, it must might be fun for the first few minutes <laughs> and then it loses its appeal. It's no, no longer very exotic. It's just annoying. And, you know, otherwise you're drinking out of a, a spray bottle. And so there are a lot of companies that are looking at you know, it would be nice to be able to drink out of something more authentic. So you're actually having, well, that authentic feel. You know, wouldn't you, if you're having a cocktail in space, wouldn't you like to have it in an actual glass? It's like a cocktail. So there's like a company, Cosmic Lifestyles, they created a, uh, a cocktail glass for microgravity. We're understanding the fluid dynamics because the fluid tends to adhere to surfaces but you need to channel it. So they created these channels on the side of the cocktail glass and they fill it from the bottom. And even, the, and even like uh, Mose, uh, Maison Moum, the uh, champagne company, and obviously in France, um, it, they, along with their microgravity champagne, and yes, they had created that, a bottle, a special bottle of the champagne, they created a glass. And because they thought, you know, they want to enhance conviviality, that's a quote, conviviality of drinking their product in microgravity. Because they have, they have their eyes focused on, well, their space hotels, what are they going to be drinking? We don't want them to be drinking some inferior product. We want them to be drinking meso and mum up in space. So they created all you know, the bottle, the glass, and the right champagne
1: they think would be suitable for um, consuming
0: in microgravity.
1: It's funny. It's funny how these small, you know, e- small, easy things are so difficult in space. I mean, the uh, Don Pettit. We talked with him, the astronaut, a couple of uh, uh, episodes ago. But he has actually developed a cup, a teacup, that is based on some of these principles, and it basically looks like a little cup, a little tiny espresso cup, except the top has been kind of folded over in this really complicated way, and you can drink out of it in space like you would. A cup of tea, right? So, um, but it doesn't look at all like a teacup. It's not, but I guess it follows those fluid dynamics you were talking about of all the going up the surfaces and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you were talking about the carbonation. Well, gases behave so, I I recently learned uh, from some experts who work on space physiology, how important fans are in space. You've got to have constantly moving air in a spacecraft because otherwise you'll just sit there and breathe and carbon dioxide will come out of your mouth and sit there and, and, and it'll just surround in. your head <laughs> in, a, in an envelope of poison gas and you'll die. <laughs> so you've got to have a fan that'll blow that out. So even simple things are really, really hard in space. So um, I, I, I'm interested to see how some of this alcohol stuff plays out, but I have to say, I understand now why you gave it a boring name space drinks association i mean come on i was thinking to myself you got to come up with this sounds like you know that's just that's just something a scientist would come up with you need you need something like the launch pad or or space you know space zap or something you know where you just space really zap. it's like it needs to sound like a, a, a cocktail lounge where you know and then you have to have certain drinks like the the association this could be one of your roles okay is that you could officially sanction what a certain drink is like the blast off. What is the blast off? Well, it consists of the following things, and and you have to you know mix it up in the in, in zero g environment. Well, they got an good. official, kind of yeah. like you're
0: right, kind of like the, um, when the IAU the different alcohol regions that they get to um, get to define what it is. What what is a true bourbon? What is a true? That's champagne? right. It's not a bourbon. <laughs> it's not made
1: in Kentucky or some crap like that. Actually, right?
0: officially, bourbon is. It has to be. It can be made anywhere in the United States, but it has to be made in the United States. It might be continental. I can't remember. But it has to be made, yeah, and it has to be made in American new American white oak barrels and think like fifty-one percent corn. And there are a few other rules there oh, as yeah, well. All that other so. Cra-
1: yeah. So stuff like that. You guys would set the standards for space drinks. And you'd be like the IAU. You know how you know how the IAU can only be the one that names planetary bodies and yep. classifies them in stars. They all that all goes through the International Astronomical Union. Well, you guys could be that for drinks, right? No, you can't name that drink that until it has been discussed and approved by us at this end, at the association that's Make right sure. that, that would yeah, be our role where you yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> will own fee. in space <laughs> yeah i wonder if astronomers have to pay a fee to get an asteroid named after them officially um but if they don't then you can't do that either but but you know maybe it might be a way of making money though I don't know.
0: Maybe. That's good. That's good. <laughs> good to so look that. the Space into Drinks that,
1: Association, yeah. then, is this official body that you guys are working on to deal with not just the uh, the the alcohol effects, but also the agriculture and in-situ effects of, of being in space. So there's all kinds of related industries and things yeah. that you guys can get your hands on. Yeah, connecting
0: into, so. all those dots. And, you know, yes, you know, all right, Space Drinks Association, it does have kind of a formal name, but that was the reason. But we also want to be clear, this will also be, this will also be about a lot of fun also. We want to, we will have various events, drinking events around the country. We're just working out some of those details as well. So it's going to be finding that balance. So it's, you know, both fun and effective, you know, in, in real research.
1: I'm working, I'm working on the gravitational wave right now. That's the drink that I'm (laughs) going to come out and present to you guys, the gravity wave. And you guys are, and you guys have to make it, it'll probably involve scotch. Uh, well,
0: probably uh, one of our first projects, you know, we were going to start, we're actually we going to launch this last year, but COVID, like everything else, it delayed it. Yeah. But one COVID. of the things we're waiting until the world is post-COVID, we're going to have a, a space theme cocktail competition, you know, just one of the first competitions, just something fun, you know, we'll put some parameters on it, ultimately, depends on who our sponsors are, where <laughs> you know, have to use their product, but we'll have a cocktail competition, Coming up probably fairly soon, hopefully. And so there'll, there'll be those sorts of things in addition to the serious stuff.
1: Okay. Well, good. So uh, space drinks drinks association at spacedrinks.org. Keep an eye out for that. And Uh, if you want to
0: know information in advance, just email, email me at Chris at spacedrinks.org. That does work. That is activated right now.
1: (laughs) Excellent. And your book, uh, just so people know, is called alcohol in space. It's available on all the places. So definitely check that out. Okay. I want to switch gears now and I want to talk about explore Mars. This is Uh, something.
0: Explore Mars. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) I don't know if you know anything about it, but I think you're involved in this group. Um, Tell us a little bit about what Explore Mars is and what your role is on it.
0: Well, Explore Mars is a nonprofit. um, Essentially, we were founded back in 2010, so we're 11 years old now. Doesn't seem possible. Essentially, what we do we're not not a we're not a membership group. What we do is, I think our primary role is bringing people together. We try to, we run conferences like the Humans to Mars Sun, which is the largest annual conference focused on sending humans to Mars. But we also do things like workshops we bring the stakeholders together, try to build commonality, try to build agreement on how to create sustainability and uh, missions to Mars and how to utilize the moon. But utilize the moon in a way that's not going to delay Mars for decades
1: so what we try to do is just force... You sound different... like Robert Zubrin. That's what he says. He's like, I don't want to be dinking around with, with the moon when we should be getting to Mars.
0: <laughs> well, we acknowledge the moon is, we're going to go to the moon. So if we're going to, use, to go to the moon, how can we do it in a way that's got, not going to impede Mars too much? And we actually use it to the benefit of Mars and not, we don't, well, I think all of us, and I, Robert and I agree, would agree that we do not want to get stuck on the moon for decades, and and then you know, sometime in decades from now, after that, we decide, oh, now we'll go to Ma- the, to the Mars, <laughs> go to Mars. We'll go to it, Mars. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. So one of the things we're trying to do is work with the lunar community to find find that balance, find you know, find the overlaps in in our in our uh, what we want to get accomplished, and find a way find solutions that'll accommodate both of our goals so that hopefully we can get back to the surface of the moon in the 2020s and to the surface of Mars in the 2030s.
1: I I get what you mean about why you're apprehensive about, you know, spending too much time and getting distracted on on the moon so that we don't actually get to Mars. But tell me if you agree with this. Doesn't it make sense that because the moon is only three days away, And it is one of the only places that we can go to that has a big surface. It's also outside of the Earth's magnetosphere. Doesn't it make sense that when we're in our preparation to go to Mars, we build an infrastructure on the moon? I love the idea. I'm one of the few people that I know, (laughs) and I talk to a lot of people about this, that's actually in favor of the Gateway the lunar gateway. I think that's a good idea. It could be a test bed uh, uh, for a lot of things that we're going to need to have to get to Mars. Furthermore, building things on the moon. I think if you could build things on the moon, that sets you up, gets you good experience for being outside of Earth's magnetosphere, for using resources that are there on the moon to recycle, to make the regolith, do what you need it to do. All that stuff is very handy so that then, now you've got a skill set that you can use on Mars. Because I, the I, I agree with are that so to an high ex- on Mars
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that to an extent. It just depends on what you mean by building on Mars. Now, like we've been generally supportive of gateway within very tight parameters. It has to really be focused on what they say can't it can't become the ISS around the moon.
1: Agreed. I couldn't actually I couldn't agree more with that. The ISS yeah. turned into what I don't know what it was. <laughs> yeah. What it and, started
0: yeah, but it should be what I, what Gateway should be, truly used from the Mars purpose, truly use it as tasting the transit vehicle technologies. So we test out all this apparatus before we send people on a long voyage, but also use it to really stimulate lunar surface travel, including, if we can, um, commercial surface activities. On the surface, however, I agree we should get experience, you know, building stuff, using using the uh, resources, but we cannot get in a position where we're just going to build a big base first or say we can't go to Mars until we can figure out how to make fuel on the surface of the moon. There are some people who say we can't go to Mars until we actually create fuel from the water on the moon. That's ridiculous. Right, I'm, of course. Yeah. yeah, I'm in favor of eventually, you know, if they can make fuel on the surface of the moon, terrific but we have no idea how long that's going to be take. We don't even know if it's viable, and we don't need that to go to Mars. And so I'm in favor of projects to investigate that, but I'm just not, I do not, certainly don't, I'm not in favor of saying that we need it before we can go to Mars, because if we did that, we're not going to go to Mars anytime this half of the century.
1: Certainly, yeah. maybe,
0: maybe by the end of the century at the rate right things go. So that's it. We just have to be careful and not, and be very and use, use the activities on the Moon to feed forward to Mars. And, you know, some things, there, some things there will be no overlap, but where we can, you know, think about Mars as we're doing it, and as we're building hardware, when possible, think about both the Moon and Mars as they're being developed, and not just the Moon, or, or else we'll turn it into a Moon-only project.
1: Yeah, I get that, and I understand why you feel that way. It's it's it and and I it, I got to step it up for NASA though. It's not always their fault. They get tossed around like a political football so many times. I would hate to be NASA because it's like you're told to go do something, and then the goals change constantly. It's all such a political mess that the reason you end up in these quagmires, like you're describing, is. I think the politicians get in the way. It's why we have our SLS instead of you know more more affordable ways of getting into space. So I get what you're I get where you're coming from. And there's definitely an an impediment. But here's the biggest thing I think we'll learn from doing this. Apart from all the technologies of being on in Gateway, all the things we'll get from building a moon base or structures on the moon, whatever it is, the thing we're going to learn the most is whether we can survive the trip. Because what makes me pessimistic about any kind of space exploration travel within our solar system is that we don't know if we can even survive it. If, you know, we've just got through talking about some, some, some silly examples. Like if you don't have a fan on you, you know, asphyxiate yourself, right? So space has got about a billion ways it can kill you. And outside the magnetosphere, we've only spent a teeny tiny fraction of time out there. We've got, you know, it can kill us a billion different ways out there. And that'll be the thing I think we learned the most from our experience with the moon. No, I agree with that.
0: I agree with that. and Yeah, there are a a lot of different things exactly as you're saying, you know, whether it be, you know, those environmental systems circulating the air, obviously the radiation, I, I, you know, I don't think is as big a problem as some people make it out to be, but it's not shouldn't be ignored either. Uh, But even things like microbial growth on the spaceships, it's, it's a problem. You know, when you have
1: people, I know, I read it, that they've got all kinds of microbes up there recently that they didn't even know what they are, uh, in the ISS.
0: Oh yeah, no, I guess apparently it can get and get really stinky over time, and, <laughs> I, and I'm unhealthy. And so you need to find ways to manage microbial growth because what humans are are big micro big bags of microbes, and so wherever we <laughs> are. You know, microbes are going to grow everywhere. Microbank. And so you need to be able to control them, you know, for, for various reasons, but particularly for the health of the crew members, because that's not a healthy environment over time. So it's all these things that you don't necessarily think of that, that are, are separate from the big ones. Like everybody talks about uh, radiation or we're in gra- we don't have any gravity. Therefore, you know, our bone mass um, starts deteriorating and our heart muscle starts deteriorating. Those are things we've studied for years, but people just don't talk about a lot of those other things, which I think they're all can be manageable, but we still have to think about them and take countermeasures.
1: I don't know how manageable this is. I mean, we, yeah, we sent the Kellys up or John Kelly, I guess, up for a year and we measured his bone loss and all this stuff. Some of this stuff is pretty serious and long lasting. And I wonder if we're going to ever reach a point where if we get to Mars, the people that go there can't come back and uh, their bodies will have changed to the point where they wouldn't survive on earth. I wonder these things. Um, we won't know, of course, till we try it, but you know, these are, these are big questions in my opinion. Are you, so I'm not as optimistic as obviously you are, but tell us, tell me, you know, what are your thoughts on all of these things? Going to Mars? Is it just a technical issue? Is that it's not
0: entirely it's- just a technical it's partially, I mean, and we can accomplish that but right now it is a, it's also a political issue as well but we we'll, you know we i think we can figure that one out but the technical issue i think we can figure that as well but i think what you were talking about you know there are some there are a lot of physiological issues that we don't know i think yeah. i think we will be fine assuming something unfortunate doesn't happen on the trip there but i think we will be able to survive the transit there on the surface back You know, I think the astronauts will accept an increase of a certain amount of cancer sometime in their life. But the radiation, except for extrasolar events, which we, you know, you know, that's another matter. Gamma ray bursts, things like that. It would kill them instantly. And you can shield against those. But, you know, you're talking about long term. It's not the scenario you're talking about isn't going to be a people as far as we know. You know, people do one of these initial, say, a conjunction class mission, which means a long stay, where you go, you know, basically you're away from Earth for three years. You take six to eight months there, you're there for a year and a half on the surface, and then another six to eight months back. And yeah, you're going to be, there are going to be some, probably some physical issues because you've been away from Earth gravity for a number of years. But you'll still be able to come back, most likely, and get back to your normal. You know, the way you were physically.
1: Oh, boy, I hope, I hope you're right, Chris, because, you know, we, it is shocking to me how finely tuned we are to being here. I mean, we were evolved to be here <laughs> specifically, not on the moon, not in orbit, not on Mars, everything messes us up. And I hope you're right. I hope that it's just a matter of, oh yeah, we'll just put some extra shielding up, maybe do rotating, a rotated a spacecraft for gravity and, and, and we're good to go. Right. We'll just eat and, and come on back and, and, uh, we'll be fine. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm very skeptical about our ability to, to survive this. But of course, we won't know until we give yeah, it a try. I think and it's a long term,
0: you know, when people, for instance, if Elon Musk achieves his goal of, you know, sending people one way to Mars, you know, and they, have, there are people there for.
1: <laughs> I love how that's one way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Bye. Well, he, well, he did say he wants to die on Mars, preferably on it, not yeah. on impact. So, but it's, um, yeah, he yeah, landing there on impact would have a physiological impact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that would be a, like, yeah an
1: adverse uh, one too. Yes, but
0: you know, if you have people there that are either there for you know decades. You might have that impact, but even more so, I think the other, you know, last time I we spoke, I mentioned, of course, there are two taboos. There are probably more, actually, but two big taboos in space, alcohol, but an even bigger one, sex. Yeah. And yeah. so the biggest issue is when people have sex in space on Mars, and if they give birth on Mars, what when a child is actually, the whole process, you know, is... Done in microgravity or one third gravity or one sixth gravity, how is that child going to develop physiologically? Exactly. are they yeah. going to be are they going to be able to adjust? I think anybody who was born on earth could probably will be able to you know adjust back not everybody maybe perfectly because everybody has different physiology here also there are a lot of astronauts have virtually no impact when they've been up in space for a long period of time and others it hits much, you know, in a much uh, more adverse manner. But, you know, but most people can get back to pretty much normal, but I don't know that's going to be the case if people are born, um, you know, born in space because we, but we don't know. And it's one of these things, well alcohol in space is something that's actually technically going to be easy to test out some of those unknowns. Sex in space, you know, that. That's more difficult. And that's that you know, that has big ethical and legal, you know, issues that you don't it want does. to actually with. I was just thinking about it. those yeah.
1: those ethical ones. I was trying to think about, you know, how ethical is that, how moral is that to, to do it. But that notwithstanding, you've got to set aside these, you know, nationality issues and, and the just the practical aspects of it as well. There's a ton of things to think about uh, going to Mars. It's crazy.
0: It is. And you know, and frankly, we're not gonna know the answer to a lot of these questions until we do it.
1: How much yeah. is it going to cost? Do you think to get to Mars? What's what's the price tag? A human? Uh, they, a, a, I I know it matters. So let me let me let me, let me ask that question better. Uh, what would be the cost of a mission to Mars if it's just boots on the ground, plant a flag, and come home, which is one way to get there? or, or the cost of a mission where we stay for a lunar year, I guess, so that we can. I'm sorry, a Martian right. year, so we can get back.
0: Those wouldn't actually. There they would be a difference because there's different mass, but. It's, it wouldn't be as much of a difference as you think. And this is coming, and I'm a policy guy. I know all the mission architectures thinking around, but so I'm not going to, I can't talk with absolute authority on the mission architectures, but I've been in these discussions a lot over yeah, over the last decade or more, really. And, um, you know, a big portion of the cost is actually obviously getting us there, but landing and getting us off the surface And so you have to do that whether you're staying a while or not. You know, staying longer, there are, of course, other things, you know, particularly if you're not living off the land, you actually have to bring enough supplies. You have to have the systems to keep people alive. But it's really expensive to do, you know, get them there, land successfully on the surface and then get them off the surface back to Mars. But so I'm not going to say what the difference between the two missions are. And I'm not going to give you a precise number on, you know, what the overall... Cost going to be, but I can tell you this: you know, there's been a lot of misinformation. People say it's going to cost a trillion dollars. No, it's not going to cost a trillion dollars. We haven't spent a trillion dollars on NASA with adjusted dollars, with all the NASA budgets combined from the beginning. It's <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's not going to come close. Most people think that we can do it. You know, people are divided on timeline, but you know, it's not going to cost much more than we're getting, you know, there'll be a need for increase in the NASA budget, but it's not like we're not going to get a triple.
1: Like really? That. So we, NASA could get us to Mars and back with its current budget.
0: Not with its current, but close to it. Not, I mean, I'm not saying we're not, we won't need to double it or anything like that right now, it's still around half of 1% of the federal budget.
1: I know it's uh, tiny and it's, it's a tiny. real good value for those. Yeah. So, taxpayer and, dollars. And, and,
0: and usually, Most of this would require little spikes so it's not uh-huh. going to be consistent every year. We're not going to get close to that four percent that we reached in the Apollo program. Right. But regardless, <laughs> it's not going to get even close to that trillion dollars that pundits will say. And um, another reason why it wouldn't cost a trillion dollars is we wouldn't pay a trillion dollars. That would never, that would never <laughs> get off the ground, literally in Congress or anywhere else. I wouldn't even support a mission that costs a trillion dollars. I'd be out there opposing it. So it's, it's, it, but it's hard to try to figure that out. But if you figure out what NASA's budget is likely to be over the next 15 years, you know, with some increases in it, you know, with a few spikes, you could probably come up with some numbers, but of course, then you have to subtract a lot. Not everything NASA spending is actually going to be focused on that. So just trying to figure out. What oh, I know it's
1: got a lot of other things.
0: Going yeah. On. What percentage of the NASA budget is being used on that? Say maybe Say even if it's sixty percent, and then you know feed that forward, you know, and adding it up. But it's hard to say, and it's. But one of the arguments I like saying, since I'm pretty positive it's not going to require the huge increases that people will argue we can't afford it. Well, we are affording it, you know, since it's going to cost not much more than we are already spending on NASA. So if we're going to come close to spending the same amount. To go to Mars over the next 50 to 20 years, whether we go to Mars or not, wouldn't it be more rational? Wouldn't it actually be a more uh, uh, responsible use of taxpayer dollars to actually use that money that's going to be spent on something that's ambitious, that's something that's going just a big mission that'll unite the country and the world and create innumerable innovations and i kind of put it that way i
1: agree i i had no idea i thought it was going to cost a lot more too so yeah
0: and that's a good segue because one of the other things we're about to do explore mars one of the new programs we're going to do is the mars innovation forum which is a virtual conference in may and we're going to look at all those innovations that are required for sustainability we won't focus as much on the big rockets i think those are covered but things like food how do we produce food the air uh artificial intelligence, remote medicine, looking at these, uh, and how can they benefit Earth, looking at these problems through the Mars lens, and how can they benefit Earth? And, you know, and this involves a lot of players that aren't part of the regular space community, whether it be tech companies in Silicon Valley, there are companies looking at cellular grown meat, like that company Aleph Farms that created that 3D printed um, steak using synthetic biology. I know, I
1: heard about that, um, yeah.
0: And there are lots of companies doing that. There's another one that we've had speak, Thinless Foods, that does fish. And they can create now, they've gotten so good at it, they just take some, they take some cells from various varieties of high quality fish and they can create pretty much any cut of fish. Um, but the, the, my favorite one was this company, I can't remember what the name of the company was, but they do chicken. And they were sitting down, the company was sitting down to a, a picnic with a chicken, chicken sandwiches and the chicken they were eating walked by. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah.
1: That, that, 21st century. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's
1: right. 21st all you need
0: are a few cells. But think how, hey, think how logical dinner. that is for space exploration. You're not going to bring cows or chicken anytime soon to Mars. But all, right. you, if, all you need to do is bring a few cells of each animal and you can just replicate them over and over and over and over, then you can have, you can have meat and you're not killing animals for it either. So it also yeah. accommodates a lot of different sensibilities at the same time.
1: What is it from Breaking Bad? Los Pollos Hermanos. Yeah. That'll be, yeah, that'll be the name of the company. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome though. That is, you know, you bring up some good points. And so I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, if you if you had any context for the kind of money we're talking about here, it would just be you know NASA is some you know tiny fraction of a of a tax dollar, but we spend you know well over sixty six hundred fifty million or billion sorry on uh on the on on our defense every single year. So there's just no no comparison between the well, two budgets. Can and, I give you
0: another? A, oh, sorry.
1: You can. I just want to point out that the James Webb Space Telescope, probably one of the most important things that NASA's or expensive things that NASA's ever built, is clocking in at a little over nine billion dollars. That's one aircraft carrier. Now I know that's a lot of money for a telescope. I'm not going to deny that, but still, it's you know nine billion dollars, one aircraft carrier.
0: Well, yeah. One one of the examples I like to use is because people say. We, why are we doing this? We should use the money to solve some of the problems in the world. Say, you know, solve all the problems, whatever. And so I like using this that, well, okay. Put it in that term, you know, with at half of 1% of the federal budget, let's put that into context. Uh, entitlements, basically social programs, otherwise known as entitlements. I support them. So entitlements has a negative t- connotation, but, Agreed. Left, yeah. you know, social security, Medicare, all these other uh, safety net programs are, are roughly 55, 60% of the budget and growing. And so, but let's even just say they're 50% and NASA's um, uh, half of 1%. You know, if you cut NASA, that would be one, and added it to social programs, that would be uh, a 1% increase. So so you think if we did that, you know, and added 1% of these programs, you'd all of a sudden
1: have miraculous- And world so, hunger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no,
0: it's, it would ma- it would not make any difference whatsoever even assuming it was spent on those things and we would not have NASA and we would notice it because we would actually realize all the benefits that we are losing which would, which are extraordinary.
1: Yeah. NASA is a good value, no matter how you look at it. So it's money well spent in every way. Um, You could argue a little bit about, you know, some of their, some of their decisions and policies and things (laughs) like that. That's that's (laughs) small stuff. Right. But let me, okay. But we only have a few minutes left. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, so perseverance is on the surface now it just arrived it's got a um, it's got a, it's this laboratory on board that's going to uh, look for life for the first time since the boy, the Viking probes uh, the Viking landers have been there um, and there's also a helicopter that's going to be a testbed uh, ingenuity which is going to fly around a little bit and uh, test that technology what do you think what do you when it comes to a trip to Mars for human beings, ethically, do you what should our approach be? I mean, should we just go there and trash the place? Uh, I know I'm. I'm. That's a leading question. Planetary but, protection. Uh, you're talking. Well, not necessarily that. I mean, what should our attitude be about colonizing Mars? Is it just a free for all? Whoever gets there first gets to claim all this stuff, or should we care about? Mars is an environment? What are your thoughts I, I on I
0: think we should initially be careful. I'm not, you know, I'm in the, I tend to be in the middle on this. I believe planetary protection is a real thing. We want to, we do want to at least protect areas at least long enough to make sure that we understand if there's life on Mars and if there is. We understand the life on Mars because we don't want to all of a sudden discover life on Mars and then years later realize, oh, that was life we brought from us. Yeah, that's just my, yeah, that
1: was just us. Yeah. And
0: but also can it impact Earth? Are we gonna bring back an invasive species. You know, it's gonna be microbial life, whichever kind of life, and but it still could have an impact. It's probably unlikely. But I don't there is no basis for my comment there because it may not be unlikely, because we have no no basis. For comparison, we do not know what life on other planets, if it exists, which I'm pretty sure it does. We do not know the nature of that life. So it while we think it might be unlikely it would impact us, we don't know that for a fact. But in the end, assuming that we you know we know how to manage it, we understand it, you know, I think, you know, I think there should be protected areas like there are here on Earth. But you know, the initial Mars missions will probably be set up kind of like Antarctica where Antarctica has places where we know we're going to get polluted because it has people, but other places are protected, you know, but you know, anywhere you send people, even in
1: spacesuits, it's going to get trashed. It's going
0: to get trashed because as I mentioned before, big micro micro microbial bags and spacesuits, they're not, they're not airtight. They have positive pressure. And so they, they leak. And so when they're walking on the surface, they'll be spewing microbes as they're walking along the Martian surface. They'll probably die in the environment, but we don't know. And so I think we should take precautions. We shouldn't just be, I think we should learn lessons that we've learned here on Earth and apply them moving forward. Because it's very rare that you have a new planet to try to, you, to have new lessons to uh, be, be more responsible but in the end, I'm also for if you can, if we can find ways to actually have long term sustainability, large habitats of people, uh, a la, you know, what Elon's talking about, or even the UAE's talking about cities on Mars. I think that would be terrific. But it's it's going it's to be interesting because, you know, space law, space treaties, everything else are going to become more and more important over the next few decades. Yeah,
1: <laughs> What exists now is going to get trashed because they're not, they're not very well enforced, and it's just going to take a few people to get out there and, and, and start laying their claims, and then all kinds of uh, conflicts are going to arise out of this, potentially, if we can – it depends on how many different people get there. Uh, who do you think is going to get there first? The, a government of some kind or a company?
0: I think it'll be a hybrid. Yeah. I think I think, you know, people are always saying, oh, you know, NASA versus SpaceX versus Ralph, actually China, you often throw it there also. But, <laughs> Right, Um, I think I think an American-led entity will be there before China. I don't know that for sure. It depends. You know, we could drag our feet forever. We know how much we can drag our feet when we really want to. But it's I, I think rather than SpaceX versus NASA, I think. I think it's going to be the same thing. I think SpaceX will play a role, and, and I think the other players also will. I think it's you know one of these funny things. We have these pitch battles on you know you're either for Starship or you're for SLS, and you can't you can't be anywhere in between. Can't be for both. I know. Yeah, I, I'm for both. I'm you know I I have I have my issues with both, but I I think the best case scenario is both succeed. Maybe one of them will not prove to be as acceptable as others or efficient, and maybe we might need to shift to another. But I think the best-case scenario of both work, because I think redundancy is good. But I think, you know, as these programs develop, I think there's going to be more more um, collaboration between these all these commercial entities and NASA, as well as the international partnership. I think, I think it'll be a U.S.-led international mission with heavy... Reliance on commercial players, and when I say commercial, it's like it's not just Boeing; it's all to others like Lockheed, Boeing, and you know, and Aerojet, and the others as well, because they all have something specific they're really good at, and we're just trying to find a way to do it as efficiently as possible. You know, there's a there's a risk of turning it into a Christmas tree, which Congress and NASA sometimes do, and you don't want to do that too much <laughs> and make it really expensive. But it's finding the balance between. This is the trick, and this is where Zubrin and I disagree. As Zubrin said, "This is the straightest path. This is the cheapest path." Well, it's not necessarily the most likely political path. So it's that's, finding the yeah. <laughs> it, it's finding the balance between how between political realistic what's politically realistic and what's technically realistic, and trying to find that balance between efficiency and political realism at the same time, and that's the magic. That's the magic space right there.
1: Yeah. Well, NASA has as a stated goal that it would like to get to Mars in the 2030s. Um, Do you think that's going to happen?
0: I think that can happen. Uh, I think we are, I mean, this decade, the 2020s, I know that's what you're talking about, the 2030s. But the 2020s are vital to accomplishing the goals in the 2030s. Agreed. We We are lined up to have the most extraordinary decade in the 2020s but we have to make the right decisions. And some of those decisions have to be made soon. You know, how, if we're gonna do in the 30s, when in the 30s and how are we gonna do it? And, and this is the problem. We've, we have been lined up for a number of years to be able to really move forward, but nobody seems to be able to make up their minds, at least in government, at NASA. And these decisions need to make, be made soon. And we just need to set a path, an ambitious path. It might slip, that's fine. But if you don't set a goal, you're just going to keep going, getting later and later and later otherwise. It's fine for the uh, schedules to slip if there are problems. But I think they should still aim to get there no later than the mid-2030s, you know. And if it's delayed a little longer, uh, that's okay as long as it's not delayed too long. If they can get there earlier or if, you know, an, entity, an independent entity is supposed to be able to get there earlier on their own, that's great as well you know, with my group, you know, people have various opinions where we stand on things. Most of them are wrong. You know, we just want, (laughs) we want people to get to Mars. We are supportive of, you know, a lot of different approaches. We just don't try to, we try to avoid getting pulled into these pitch battles that you have to be in, you have to be 100% on this side or 100% on that side. And there's no middle ground. That, that's not us. We're in yeah. that hazardous area in the middle.
1: <laughs> so, okay. Well, on that note, we'll just, we'll go ahead and, and close out this podcast. Chris, Chris Carberry, he is the author of Alcohol in Space, a book that is 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 available everywhere now. He's also a member of Explore Mars, a group that uh, has. I I like the the Humans to Mars workshop uh, every year that you have. What you live stream it uh, a summit the summit. Sorry, uh, and that um, that you live stream it, and that's uh, something I enjoy watching too. Uh, my friend Harley thronson's also used to be a part of it anyway harley's um, still
0: involved harley is harley, he yeah we're well I, say hi to harley for I me shall. i haven't talked in a I long still, time uh, com- <laughs> communicate with harley a lot and he's still running our achieving mars workshops he took a took a couple years off because right of, yeah he's yeah, he he, retiring from nasa and so he had a cooling off period <laughs> but yeah.
1: i understand yeah definitely uh, and Chris Haas is also involved in SpaceDrinks.org and the Space Drinks Association. So please check out all of those cool yeah. activities. And that, that
0: and, website will be uh, active in a few weeks. We'll be launching formally the Space Drinks Association uh, the week of uh, April 12th. So
1: <laughs> let's see this. Uh, it is uh, March 19th. When we record this, this will come out a week from Monday. So that'll be late in March. So just a couple of weeks when this comes out. Not so bad. definitely be on the lookout for it. So we get a little bit of advance notice on this. All right, Chris, thank you so much for taking time out to, um, to, to discuss with us all the cool stuff you're doing. Dustin will be back next episode. I hope he got a double book this week um, on behalf of Dustin and Chris. I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you so much for listening.